Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing pretty good this week. How are you? I'm doing really well, thank you. When you're listening to this, I just got back from Charleston. Mandy, you weren't there at our meetup. I wasn't there, but I'm sure you had a great time. It was really a lot of fun. At some point, people were cheering and saying, go moms and murder, and like (laughs) they filled the streets. Someone whispered about a Nobel Peace Prize. I don't know. There was like a whole thing. Now, if you ask somebody if it happened, they will maybe deny it because I made them sign NDAs. But really, it was amazing. (laughs) You'll hear about it on the nightly news, I'm sure. Don't worry. Don't worry. Okay. (laughs) I don't know what I'm saying. Please just keep going. I like my face is flushed now. I'm all red. I hate everything I just did. Just go, Mandy. Yeah, it sounds like a great time. I'm sad that I missed that. (laughs) Well, based on my story, I would be sad I missed it too. (laughs) But I'm sure it went great. It'll be wonderful. I'm super excited to go. Sorry you can't be there, but you'll be at the next one. Yeah, whatever that is. Definitely. So we're going to get right into it this week. We have a really, really interesting story, kind of a different thing, different thing than what we normally hear on the show, but still a very interesting story nonetheless. So known as the little old lady killer, Juana Barraza terrorized Mexico City in the late 1990s, making headlines as one of Mexico's first female serial killers, often killing her victims for simply just looking at her. And before we get into the events of this week's story, we're going to tell you a little about Mexico City in this week's segment of We Googled This City. As of 2009, the population of Mexico City was nearly 9 million residents and is around 573 square miles. I had no point of reference for this, but that seems pretty big. Yeah. Right? I mean, I don't know. Mandy, I don't know anymore. Why do we even comment on this? It's really just, it's been downhill for a while on our commentary (laughs) on sizes of cities. So Mexico City is actually built on the top of what used to be a lake. I don't even know how things work, but that is (laughs) very confusing. I guess it used to be a lake. It dried up and it's no longer a lake. Because it was a lake, it actually sinks over 10 inches every year. Oh, wow. And Yeah. It says something like nine meters. It's sunk in the last hundred years, but that feels like a lot. But I don't really have any sort of understanding of the metric system. And um, if you told me in football fields, I could probably tell you. Do you think of things in football fields? I feel like that's in like America, that's how you learn how to measure things. Like how many football, like I'm out playing football every day and I'm like, oh, that's three football fields, of course. But that's how I think of things in my head. Am I, is it just me? Is this just how my brain works? Well, of the two of us, I think it is just you. <laughs> it's probably just me in general. Thank you for trying to make me feel better there. It, it did not help. <laughs> um, Mexico City boasts over 160 museums, which is actually the most in the world, and most are even free to the public on Sundays. When you think of big parks, you probably think of Central Park, which is about 1.32 miles in size. Oh, gosh. I'm going to try this word. This is the one I did not look up, and I'm really regretting that now. Chapultepec. That can't be right. Park in Mexico City is actually twice the size of Central Park. That's huge. Yeah. I mean, just if you even watch Friends, which I've watched like all the episodes, still not a fan. Um, Central Park is huge. I, I There's something to compare it to. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Speaking of New York City, Mexico City is actually larger than the Big Apple. We're learning something new here every day, guys. And lastly, when we spoke about that town in Georgia, which which one was it with the German roots? I know what episode it was on, but you remember what I'm talking about? Um, North Georgia, not Alpharetta. 
Hold on. It's like on the tip of my tongue. Me too. If you're at home playing along, feel free to yell at us. We'll hear you. But we had a little translation game we played on that game. So Mandy, I decided we would do a translation game again if you are up for it. I'm always up for everything, anything, (laughs) most things. (laughs) Most, yeah. Let's clarify. So the first one is dame pan y dim y tanto. And my poor brother-in-law tried to help me with these, and it's not going well. The literal translation is give me bread and call me stupid. What do you think this actually means, like the English version of that would be? (laughs) Give me bread and call me stupid. I have no idea. (laughs) I mean, you can call me stupid if you give me bread. I really don't care. Um, But it actually means you get what you want no matter what. (laughs) That is like, (laughs) I never would have guessed that. (laughs) No, no one would have. It's so perfect. I love it. The next one is, oh gosh, no saber ni papa de algo. That's my translation, my pronunciation. So that one means not to know even a potato about something. What do you think that means? That one's a little easier. I mean, just I guess I would say that you just don't know anything about that topic. Yes, not even a potato's worth. That's yeah. perfect, Mandy. Good job. So the next one is comiendo moscas. The literal translation is eating flies. What do you think that means, Mandy? Um, my guess would be like eating your words or like regretting something you said. That's really good. It's not right, but I like what you're going <laughs> with there. Uh, it means going off on a tangent, which is really perfect for us, right? Yeah. So you guys, we'll get started because you guys, dame pan y dim y tanto, but really I'm just comiendo moscas, and contrary to popular belief, we do not... Sabemos ni papá de algo, which I think means, I mean, unless I did the offensive version, which my brother-in-law tried to help me out with this. I think it means we'll get started because you guys, oh, you guys get what you want no matter what. You're stupid and eat bread or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) That's not what it means. But really, I'm just on a tangent. And contrary to popular belief, we do know more than just a potato about something. I would like a lot of applause for that. That was terrible. I really am applauding you. (laughs) More embarrassing. That's amazing. Well, originally, one of the phrases I had in there, I sent to my brother-in-law. He was like, you can't say this. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it says what you're meaning, but that is actually not the translation. Please don't do this. So thank you very much for that, Christian. Mandy, (laughs) let's please get into the show. All right. Thanks to shows like Mindhunter and the influx of Ted Bundy movies on Netflix this year, we have had serial killers on the brain in the recent months. But with the exception of Eileen Warnos and our recent episode on Dorothea Puente, you probably aren't very familiar with many more female serial killers. In fact, in the U.S., only 16% of all serial killers are women. In Mexico, a country one-fifth the size of the U.S., there are only nine well-known female serial killers. As you'll see in this story, the lack of education about female serial killers actually becomes quite an issue when trying to find La Matevijitas, which translates into the old lady killer. Serial killers aren't really a thing in Mexico. Of course, there's murder, but the motive behind most of the killings there are typically gang-related or drug-related. So that being said, female serial killers are even more unheard of in Mexico, which is one of the things that makes this case so, so fascinating and unique. And all of this begs the question, how does a mother of four go on to become one of the most infamous serial killers in Mexico? 
Juana Barraza was born on December 27, 1957 in Hidalgo, which is a rural area north of Mexico City. In her poverty-stricken village, Juana had anything but an idyllic childhood. She never learned to read or write much beyond her name as a child, and she was illiterate until much later in her life. Her father was a local police officer, but he was really never a big part of her life, and her mother was an alcoholic sex worker who, according to Juana, at the age of 12, uh, said that her mom actually sold her for three beers to a man named Jose Lugo. Oh, wow. According to Juana, the first night that she was with Jose, he tied her to a bed and raped her. She wasn't just traded to Jose for one terrible night, though. Her mom actually accepted three beers in order for Jose to keep Juana as his personal sex slave forever. While living with Jose, Juana was given the task to take care of the house and was told really that she was not even allowed to actually leave the premises. Shortly after living with Jose, Juana became pregnant and had an abortion. She was still forced to live with Jose, and he continued to rape her, and she eventually became pregnant again with a son. When questioned as to where her daughter Juana was living, Juana's mother told others that she ran away to be with Jose, but her stepfather actually never believed this story. He continued to look for Juana for years to come. Although his wife, Juana's mother, had abused Juana and sold her to Jose, Juana said later that her stepfather had shown her compassion and cared about her, and that he never abused her. Five years after Juana was sold to Jose, her cousins found her, and she was able to escape. From there, her stepfather actually raised the son she had with Jose. Juana went on to have three more children with other men later. Unfortunately, several years later, her oldest son passed away due to injuries sustained during a mugging. Needless to say, Juana had an extremely dysfunctional childhood, being raised by a mother who thought nothing of her to send her to live with someone that would rape and abuse her. Juana, on the other hand, took great pride in being a single mother, and she felt that it was something she was really great at. Juana and her children rented an apartment on the outskirts of Mexico City while she financially supported the family and was also the sole parent to her three living children. Like most moms, Juana had a hobby, but not just any hobby. Juana didn't spend her time knitting or watching reality TV or even putting together a podcast with her friend. Juana's hobby and obsession was with Lucha Libre, which is Mexican masked wrestling. While we have wrestling here in the U.S., there are some differences between what we have here and Lucha Libre. Lucha Libre is not just wrestling. It combines wrestling, boxing, and judo. This freestyle wrestling began to gain popularity in the early 20th century in Mexico. Lucha Libre typically involves battles between fighters with cartoon character names and costumes who are identified as either good guys who fight by the rules or villains who break them. Juana not only watched Lucha Libre, but she also participated and often organized wrestling events for small town parties. She was often seen in the front rows of arenas, completely enthralled in the pageantry of the whole thing, the whole experience, if you will. If you go back and look at photos of Juana during this time, you will notice that her costume of choice was a bright pink wrestling sling with a butterfly mask and a butterfly belt buckle. Occasionally, she would participate, and when she did, she would do so under the name of the Lady of Silence. And when she was asked why she chose that name, she reportedly said, quote, because I'm quiet and keep to myself. It's important to note that in Lucha Libre, there are two kinds of fighters. 
There's Technikos, which are the good guys, and Rudos, who play the bad guy. Rudos were the wrestlers that had no formal training, and these are the ones who really were just self-taught and kind of scrappy. Juana's character, the Lady of Silence, was a true Rudas. She had no real training, and she learned everything she knew about Lucha Libre by watching it on television or going to these events in person. While female wrestlers had been allowed to wrestle throughout Mexico since around the 1940s, they were not allowed to wrestle in Mexico City until the mid-1980s. And while Juana claimed her character, the Lady of Silence, kept to herself, we know Juana Barraza did anything but keep to herself. She's actually self-described as being a villain to the core. Juana was ruthless, both in the ring and out of it. She worked to support her family as a street vendor, selling popcorn, gelatin, and socks. And she would also make some money appearing as an occasional luchadora, which is a female wrestler in Mexico City. As you can imagine, selling popcorn did not cover the cost of raising a family of four. And because of this, Juana began her life of crime by taking part in petty theft. Her neighbors in her largely middle-class neighborhood described the children and Juana as friendly and always pleasant. However, as the streets darkened, she took on yet another persona, the little old lady killer. And we are going to get into a lot more details of this case after a quick break for a word from this week's sponsors. We are so excited to talk to you guys about Songfinch. If you've listened to our show for a while, you know that we love Songfinch and we still swoon over the song that they created for us. If you aren't familiar with Songfinch, welcome to the perfect answer to the question, what do I get this person for every birthday or holiday? Songfinch works with hundreds of professional artists, musicians, and songwriters to bring your stories and memories to life through their one-of-a-kind radio quality songs. Not only is this an incredible and original gift, it's actually super affordable. Personalized songs start at just $99 and are delivered within just seven days. So if you're like me and you haven't even begun to start shopping for the holidays, this is perfect for you. Their songwriting community has over 350 professional musicians, and you can choose the style of the song you want and give writers a few notes about the person the song is for, and they do the rest. But don't just take our word for it. Here's a clip from the original song, Partners in Crime, written for us last year. Both just doing the best we can Solving mysteries in between the laughs With the okayest moms you could Use promo code MOMS20 for $20 off your personalized song from scratch at songfinch.com. Again, for $20 off your personalized song from scratch, go to songfinch.com and use promo code MOMS20. And stick around to the end of the episode to hear our whole song in its entirety. When you get home from work, what's the first thing you do? Make dinner, clean the bathroom, or do you run into your room as quickly as possible, rip off your work pants, and slide into your favorite pair of yoga pants? This actually wasn't a trick question. We all hop into our yoga pants as quick as humanly possible. But with Beta Brand, when you get home, you're already in your yoga pants, which means you just bought yourself extra time for closet snacks away from your children. I recently got and fell in love with the classic skinny leg dress pant yoga pants in Petite by Beta Brand. I'm obsessed with the fact that not only do they look like a normal pair of really nice, well-structured dress pants, they feel like my favorite pair of yoga pants. I really love that they have a variety of colors and styles, so they have something for everyone. 
I've told anyone and everyone who will listen about these pants. They are perfect for those that value comfort and style. Beauty doesn't have to be a pain, and Beta Brand makes that a reality. You've got to try a pair of these pants from Beta Brand. Trust me, you'll love them. And you can get 20% off at betabrand.com moms. Don't wait. See for yourself why millions of women agree that these are the most comfortable dress pants ever. Go to betabrand.com moms for 20% off. That's B-E-T-A-B-R-A-N-D.com slash moms. And now back to the episode. Although it's thought that Wanna began killing as early as the late 1990s, from 2002 to 2006, up to 32 victims were murdered in similar ways in and around Mexico City. These numbers are, of course, alarming. However, you've got to remember that Mexico City is a huge city. In 2000, the city was one of the world's largest cities, with 18 million people calling it home. Now, as we talked about, there's about 9 million. Today, the city keeps growing and expanding. So if this many murders have been committed in this town I grew up in outside of Tallahassee, whether it was in 2000 or 2019, it would have been about 2% of the population that would have been wiped out. Like that's huge. Yeah. <laughs> that's all of your neighbors pretty much. But yeah, but in this city this large, it's it's not that big of a number. It's a lot of people, but there are so many people there. So of course the number is alarming, but you can understand the possibility of many individuals in Mexico City not being aware that a serial killer was even on the loose. This was, of course, the era before smartphones were a thing when you had to purchase a newspaper or log on to AOL and wait for 15 minutes for a website to load. Information just wasn't available as quickly. More importantly, as we said before, serial killers really aren't a thing in Mexico, so it would take some time for authorities to even be able to piece things together to realize what they were dealing with. Want to use a variety of tactics to gain access to the victims and their homes. Juana often did this by posing as a nurse or a government official or welfare worker, complete with official government paperwork, she carried stethoscopes, or whatever else she really felt that she would need to play this part. She would often cruise public places in search of elderly women on their own and offer to help them with their shopping bags, and in some cases, she would request cleaning work. In Mexico, it's not uncommon for domestic workers to go door-to-door seeking work, especially in an upper-class neighborhood. And that's exactly what happened on November 25th, 2002, when she met 64-year-old Maria de la Luz Gonzalez, and Maria became Juana's first victim on record. Gonzalez invited Juana into her apartment to help her, and once Juana made it into the apartment, she claims that Gonzalez made comments that Juana felt were derogatory. Juana testified later that Gonzalez was, quote, uppity, and thought that because she had money, she could humiliate this woman. She was allegedly infuriated by this and beat Gonzalez before fatally strangling her with her bare hands. While Juana would indeed become a serial killer, after the murder of Gonzalez, she actually did not kill again for three more months. It's speculated that the news stories about the murder inspired Barraza to strike again. By November of 2003, just one year after her first documented murder, crimes against elderly women in Mexico City began to increase. Women were being murdered in their homes. They were being strangled with cables, with scarves and stockings. There was often evidence of extensive and unwanted abuse, which is really uncommon at the hands of a female serial killer. The homes were often ransacked and anything of value was taken. When the slayings began, law enforcement denied any notion of a serial killer in Mexico City, and they stated that these murders against these elderly women were awful, but they were all completely unrelated. 
things began to change after the murder of Carmen Camila Gonzalez Miguel. Carmen was an 82-year-old wealthy woman living in Mexico City. While Carmen was one of many women that Juana killed, she was the first and only victim to have a criminologist as a daughter. Luis Rafael Moreno Gonzalez was a very well-known and powerful criminologist in Mexico who helped profile several cases, including a serial killer out of France. After Carmen was murdered, coupled with the press criticizing the police and attempting to draw attention to these murders, police set up a task force of 100 detectives to lead the charge and find out exactly who was killing these elderly women around Mexico City. They began to gather enough evidence and witness testimonials to believe that a serial killer was indeed responsible for this. This would be the first time in Mexican history to date that a serial killer was searched for as a serial killer, meaning somebody wasn't just arrested for one murder and later other victims were found that they had killed. They were actually, they knew that they were actually looking for a serial killer. At this time, the police, of course, still didn't know the person who would become the little old lady killer was, in fact, a female. But as soon as the killer was given the name of the little old lady killer, the search was on. When speaking of the killer, the police used the Spanish pronoun L to indicate masculinity. So they were calling it El Matavijitas instead of La Matavijitas, which she would eventually come to be known as. It's important to remember that male and female serial killers often kill in very different ways. And one theory suggests that male serial killers are hunters who tend to follow their victims, often going from town to town. They wait for the perfect time to attack and will often butcher their victims, much like a hunted game, and keep these trophies of their escapades. While men largely attack strangers, 80% of female serial killers know their victims. Those are often the cases of black widows or caretakers or nurses who are committing these crimes. This theory aligns with the murders that Juana is responsible for, kind of in the way that she gained the confidence of her victims by appearing to be caring and helpful. If male serial killers are hunters, female serial killers tend to be the gatherers. Male serial killers often kill for sexual gratification and female serial killers murder for financial gain. Because a large percentage of Juana's victims have been abused, the police had a difficult time coming up with a profile of the killer. So this whole thing was kind of interesting to me that they kind of denied that there's a serial killer right for a really long time. And then finally this criminologist's mother is killed and they're like, okay, maybe we have a serial killer. But then they just could not really grasp that it could be anything but a man. Like that was just, they're like, it's a man, that's it. It doesn't matter. This is this is who fits this profile. Like they couldn't look outside the box. And that comes into play throughout this entire thing. I mean, she killed people for years and she, it was just kind of like nobody was looking for her. So as I was saying, police really could not let this idea go that, you know, a man had to have done this because, of course, the sheer strength it would take to manually strangle someone is not something they often find in female killers. But Juana was really strong. She could actually easily bench press over 200 pounds. She was more than capable of committing these crimes, but the police, even after eyewitnesses would say otherwise, continued to think that a female would not fit this profile. The chief prosecutor in Mexico City initially thought that the murderer had high intelligence and a very clever mind. At one point, the police even thought there may be two murderers as there were problems with conflicting evidence. This idea was discounted after further investigation, leading detectives on yet another rabbit trail. 
The police also trailed off on an even more bizarre rabbit trail that further delayed finding the true serial killer. Three of the victims of Juana actually owned a print of this 18th century painting called Boy in Red Waistcoat, a painting by Paul Cezanne. And of course, the police, they don't really have a lot to go on in this early investigation. So they find the same painting in three homes and they think, well, maybe there's a connection here. But all this strange coincidence really accomplished was really distracting the detectives. And eventually it was seen as nothing more than a very popular painting found in many homes. Without a clear suspect, police began to warn the elderly population of Mexico City not to trust those they did not know and to not let strangers into their homes. They even distributed leaflets with safety information. There was stuff everywhere. After the criminologist's mother had been murdered, they it was like kicked into high gear and everyone was looking, everyone was on the lookout, and it became a really big manhunt. So a special operation was launched under the name Operation Parks and Gardens. Officers would patrol the areas where the killer was active and would even pay elderly women to act as bait in park areas. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) The idea there is so, like, it makes sense, sure. It makes sense that you'd be like, hey, you're kind of who's being killed, but like, hey, I'm going to give you 20 bucks. Stand here. If somebody comes up to you and offers to come to your house, let them come. We're watching. Don't worry. We're watching (laughs) the whole thing. They probably won't kill you, and if they do, we're here. I mean, that's just the craziest. I get it. I do get the sting idea, but these little old ladies, like, as bait is just the craziest, I don't know, in my brain, it's just beyond. It's just beyond. So all of the victims had thus far been women over the age of 60 who lived alone. While the police were really still working to put together a solid profile of the serial killer, as we said before, they were getting some eyewitness accounts. So in one incident, it was stated that a large woman in a red blouse was seen leaving the home of a murdered woman. Police in Mexico had never really dealt with a female serial killer, so initially police dismissed the notion that the witness could have seen a female and assumed that the serial killer was a man dressed in women's clothing. Oh my gosh, it really is, it's just interesting that they were so, just that, the idea of it actually being a woman really was so far out there that like their next thing was like, well, it must be a man in woman's clothing. Several times they would say like, I saw a woman run out and she was wearing a red sweater and they're like, "Mm, no, she was strangled. It was definitely a man, but good try. Like they just could not, they cut off 50% of the population right there. Just absolutely were not looking for a female. They were looking for a man and that's, they had tunnel vision and that was a huge issue, obviously. In mid-2005, Juana became involved with a taxi driver named Jose Francisco Torres Herrera. Herrera became her accomplice, and the attacks increased in range and frequency. There was one, I was looking at like the dates that she had killed people, or you know, that allegedly she had killed killed these elderly women. And there was one that was like two in one day, but like different people, not in the same house. There were some that were like three in the same week. There were a ton. And it was just kind of like when the mood struck her, that's just what she did. And just, wow. and then it would go months, you know, it, it, the frequency was so strange to me. It was, it was kind of crazy. So we have still so much more to get into after one final break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Recently, I was getting a package together to send to a Patreon supporter in Australia. While I was excited to send something to the land down under, I was not thrilled about heading to the post office with my kids, then to stand in line to fill out the customs form while also feeling that somehow I'm committing an international crime while answering basic questions I should be able to answer without sweating because I still don't know what I'm doing when I'm there. 
Thanks to stamps.com, I was able to print postage for the gift as well as fill out the custom forms that took me step-by-step -step through the process so everything was done and I don't have to worry about being a postal outlaw. Stamps.com will save you time and money. The holidays are just around the corner, which means life is about to get crazy. If you own your own business or if you're an online seller sending out products, stamps.com can do it all from your computer, at your office, or at your house. More importantly, you can avoid the lines and holiday traffic that's filled with those cars with the reindeer antlers. Don't spend a minute of your holiday season at the post office this year. Sign up for Stamps.com instead. There is no risk. With our promo code MOMSANDMURDER, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in MOMSANDMURDER. That's Stamps.com, enter MOMSANDMURDER. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Life comes at you fast, but when you're looking for counseling, minutes can feel like hours and hours can feel like days. You want help quickly, but how will you fit it into your schedule? Our problems rarely arise during normal work hours, so why is counseling mainly available during normal business hours? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or maybe something that's preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp has you covered and at times that are convenient for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, grief, and more. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist without ever having to leave the house. BetterHelp is secure, convenient, and professional. If you ever find you want to change counselors, you can do so at any time with no additional charge. Financial aid is also available to those who qualify. Best of all, it is truly an affordable option, and Moms and Murder listeners get 10% off your first month. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love within 24 hours. Go to betterhelp.com moms and use discount code moms for 10% off your first month. Again, for 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com moms and use discount code moms. And now back to the episode. By November of 2005, the Mexican police continued to believe that they were dealing with a male serial killer. And instead of believing there was a possibility that a woman could possibly, you know, could be responsible for these murders, he launched a swoop on Mexico City's transgender sex workers. Early in the investigation, police said that there were no fingerprints to be found. But eventually, 49 transgender sex workers were fingerprinted and they were eventually released when their prints did not match those that were collected from these crime scenes. Coming up empty, the police began to check the fingerprints of the bodies that were in the city's morgues. This was because of the belief that the old lady killer might have died by suicide since the rate of murders had actually decreased around this time. Nearly four months had passed since there had been a murder of an elderly woman. But then on January 25th, 2006, Juana went after her final victim. Ana Maria de los Reyes Alfaro, who was 84 years old, invited Juana into her home to help her with laundry. This was an action that would cost her her life. Juana strangled Ana Maria to death in her home using the stethoscope that she had brought along with her. But what Juana did not realize is that Ana Maria did not live alone. Just as Juana was fleeing the apartment, Ana Maria's tenant was walking in to say hello, and he came across Ana Maria's body and actually witnessed Juana running away from the scene. The tenant immediately flagged down authorities, and the officers chased after and eventually arrested Juana Bazara, and they were shocked that the suspect who was caught was 
a woman. Ding, ding, ding. According to the news outlets, Juana was arrested wearing a red sweater and carrying two plastic bags where she had the stethoscope that she had used to kill Anna Maria, as well as a list of beneficiaries of the government program known as C-Valet. Surprisingly, prior to her arrest, Juana had actually considered turning herself into the police on at least three different occasions. She once even sat outside the police department while watching some of the same officers that were working on her case, and she kind of just watched them come and go. But she ultimately decided that she did not want to leave her children without their mother, so she returned home, but still continued this life of crime and killing. I wonder how often that's actually happened, you know, for someone to be a serial killer and to ever consider to turn themselves in, because I just can't imagine her just sitting there, you know, outside of it a few times. I think it was three times she sat there and watched, you know, thought I'm going to just go in. I'm just going to say I did it. I'm going to say I did it. And then even watching the detectives, you know, are working on your case and thinking I'm, I'm just going to do it. But then she just has this overwhelming, probably because of how she was raised. She doesn't want to leave her kids, you know, right. in this situation. So, man, it's just totally messed up all the way around. So in the book, The Little Old Lady Killer, The Sensationalized Crimes of Mexico's First Female Serial Killer, it talks about the time that Juana was interviewed on national television just one week before her arrest. In the interview, Juana talks at length about how much she enjoys the sport of lucha libre. She was asked if she enjoyed being a ruda in the sport, and she replied, ruda del corazón, which translates in English to ruda from the bottom of my heart. She was also asked whether she was more of a Ruta in her house or just in the ring, and she backed away from the mic kind of slowly and said, well, in both places. This interview was actually seen all over the country of Mexico, and yet no one, not the interviewer, not the police, not a spectator, ever thought that she was a serial killer the country was, you know, panicking and looking for. In the interview, she's even wearing the infamous red sweater that she was arrested in, and witnesses had said they saw her like every crime. It was like the lady in the red sweater. And so she's wearing this on national television, talking to people, and no one's at all thinking that this is this is the person. Yeah, that's wild. It is. And I there is a bust of her, like a sculpt sculpture of her yeah. that the police made and they for some reason she's taking a picture with it I guess the police took it later it's identical I mean it is it's unreal how like the eyewitness accounts it looks exactly like her it's just that they thought it was a man that's it so because the police had focused so much time on looking for a male serial killer who really knows how many opportunities they could have had to find Juana Eventually, the time came for Juana to have her day in court. Juana told the court that the murder of her final victim was lingering resentment of her mother, who had horrifically abused and neglected her as a child. Her mother died of cirrhosis of the liver years earlier, and many claim that Juana spent all that time trying to kill her mother by killing elderly women in Mexico City. Which, if there was ever a motive, that sure sounds like that could be the one. So the police and detectives working this case really have a lot to present in court. They have this description of the killer. They also have eyewitnesses. And as we discussed before, even more damagingly, Juana was carrying a stethoscope, pension forms, and a card identifying her as a social worker when she was arrested. She also had a list of names and addresses of elderly women affiliated with the government assistance program that she had all this information on. 
So it's kind of thought that she was going through the names one by one looking for her next victims. I wonder if they ever released those names because wouldn't that be crazy to see, hear your name on there? You know, I'm, I mean, I doubt they did, but like, yeah, you're just like, oh, these are the next 20 people. I'm going to their house. And if they answer the door and let me in, I'm going to kill them. That's crazy. Yeah. So Juana confirmed killing Anna Maria and three other women, but denied involvement in all other murders. Prosecutors from Mexico City said that the fingerprint evidence found at the scene linked Juana to at least 10 additional murders in the area. Again, early on in the investigation, police said that they had no fingerprints, but by the time they were interviewing the transgender sex workers in the area, they claimed to have several from numerous crime scenes. So the interesting thing about that is like what police were telling people in the community, they were saying, oh, we don't have any evidence. They've left no physical evidence. There is no way we can figure out who did this. And then all of a sudden, whenever they're like, oh, we should check out, you know, these people. Then they're like, we, we have, we actually have fingerprints. So don't worry, guys, we have this and we can compare it. So it was kind of like, I know that police have to keep some evidence to themselves and obviously they can't release everything to the public, but it was kind of confusing when all of a sudden they're like, all these people were fine. Um, their fingerprints aren't there. Oh, by the way, we actually did have fingerprints. We kind of, we got you there, guys. We got you there. We actually yeah. had them. So it was kind of an interesting I don't know. I feel like when they release the information, they either tell you it or they don't. Like, But you'd never find out. Does that make sense? Like you'd never right. hear like, oh, actually, we were lying. We, we've had this the entire yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, of course. Sure. In the spring of 2008, Juana Barraza was tried in court with the prosecution stating that she had been responsible for at least 40 murders. On the 21st day of March 2008, Barraza was found guilty on 16 charges of murder and aggravated burglary. She was sentenced to 759 years in prison, but will be paroled regardless in 2058, at which time she is 100 years old. In Mexico, they don't have the death penalty, and they have like a time limit on how long a person can be incarcerated. And so after age 100, you are free, I guess, to leave jail. So you can live, you can leave. Yeah. Barraza showed little emotion as she heard the verdict stating, quote, may God forgive you and not forget me, end quote. She stated that the killings helped release her pent-up anger against her mother and that she would appeal against all but one of the convictions. After Barraza's arrest, police searched her apartment and found a trophy room with newspaper clippings of the murders along with objects taken from the victims, such as religious items, including crucifixes, rings, and Bibles. There was also an altar to Jesus Malverde and Santa Muerte, two folk saints commonly venerated by Mexican criminals. So this is kind of an interesting thing that I have not heard of, and I don't think they have this in the States. In 2015, after nine years of incarceration, Juana joined 48 other incarcerated couples in a wedding ceremony organized by Mexican prison officials. Just like a big group wedding? Right. Yeah, it is like a big group wedding. It feels a little 60 days in <laughs> slash love after lockup to me. Like if you <laughs> meshed it, that's what this is. So the marriages were part of the Mexican government's program called Bonds in Confinement which helps inmates forge personal relationships with each other. Juana started a relationship with another prisoner named Michelangelo, who was 74 years old and was also in prison for murder. They communicated only through letters and met just on the day that they got married. Juana wasn't really sold on him, but she decided to get married anyway. They met three more times for a total of just 40 minutes. Wanda ended up filing for divorce two years later. 
Juana stated that love was not for her. She would rather focus on making tacos, which was her job at the prison. Juana has remained close to her oldest daughter, who is the legal guardian to her youngest children. Quite honestly, for all the crimes that Juana committed, there really is not a ton of information. However, the book that we referenced earlier, The Little Old Lady Killer by Susana Vargas Cervantes that we mentioned earlier, um, it actually came out in August of this year, and I was able to read a lot of it prior to discussing this story because there really, truly is not a lot of information. Even the, the stuff that was found was in Spanish, like if there was anything. But you'd think if somebody was killed this killed this many people, there'd be like 54 documentaries. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. Like even think of Eileen Warnos. There's how many movies about her and, and stuff. And this is kind of like, I've never heard of this lady ever, you know? Because of this, Mexican authorities, as well as U.S. and other profilers, had to really reexamine how they looked at serial killers. In this same book, the author talks about her meeting with Juana. She states that when she went to meet with Juana at the prison, she was barely able to walk due to a terrible back injury that she had suffered years before. And Juana did not want to discuss specifics of her cases, but she spent a lot of time talking about how proud she was of her children. She said to the author, really, you can call me anything, but she would not take being called a bad mother. And I can imagine largely in part to the mother that she had growing up. She doesn't want to be compared to that whatsoever. Juana's daughter has recently finished college at the time of the interview, and Juana, who had grown up illiterate, had even learned to read and write herself. According to the author, Juana is also working on a book titled When Women Cry, which is to some degree about the nighttimes in prison, and the title's in reference to the wailing that can be heard from the women throughout the prison. As I said before, there's really not a ton of information, but there's even less information on the victims of Juana Barraza outside of names and ages. Juana is still in prison and will likely be there until she dies. It is such an interesting story because, you know, you have to wonder if they would have realized earlier that they could be looking for a female serial killer. Could things have, been, you know, ended differently? Could they have caught her after the fifth person? But they were so focused on looking for this man that she literally went on national television and talked, you know, wearing the same thing she wore all the time and no one put it together. No one was looking for this, this woman. So it's, it's interesting that it does like take cases like this for people to, um, look at how they profile. And like you, we've seen, I've seen the first season of Mindhunters. I still haven't seen the second one, but, um, the first season of Mindhunters, I know you saw that too. And just learning about profiling and like, that's just not something you're born knowing <laughs> like they had to right. learn this through interviews and talking to people so this is just another way that they've kind of learned and they'll you know know for next time they'll you know uh, collectively people will know for next time god forbid something like this happened they would open it up and say hey women can kill too we we've yeah. done it so um yeah. yeah don't know what i'm saying let's move on mandy Okay, so we are switching gears, and this week for Last Thing Before We Go, we're going to do a fun little thing because it is almost Halloween, and, you know, Melissa is not, like, the biggest fan of Halloween. I really like Halloween, so I decided to tell Melissa some fun facts about Halloween that are not scary and will not give her nightmares. I love – I hope. <laughs> I love hopefully. how, like, you have to really water this down for me. You know, like, I'm just a small little baby. <laughs> it's true. I am. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I found some interesting things about Halloween. They're Halloween-ish, and I'm excited to share them with you. So the first thing is just just a fun 
interesting fact. I feel like it's very Googled this city-esque. Okay. It's like something I feel like you would say. Um, just a random little piece of information. So the heaviest pumpkin ever recorded. How heavy do you think the heaviest pumpkin oh, Now I know what you feel like whenever I put you on the spot. Um, <laughs> all of my numbers are going to be da- dumb. Can I say a thousand pounds? One, you can. Okay, I'm going to say a thousand that. pounds. Yeah, you're you would be wrong. <laughs> really wrong? But you you can say that. Um actually, so the heaviest pumpkin ever recorded, it's in the Guinness Book of World Records was grown in Belgium and it weighed 2624.6 pounds. I'm actually very proud of myself. I yeah. my first thought was 200 pounds. So <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I know I totally would have guessed low on that because you just I just can't even imagine no. like a pumpkin that's like 2,000 pounds or, you know, over 2,000 pounds. So I thought that was really, really interesting. And it gets changed every year because people are always trying to outdo it. I don't even know how you grow a pumpkin that size, but that is currently the heaviest on record. Yeah. Another fun thing that I came across today while I was looking for fun facts, and this, of course, is just perfect for me. So candy corn was not always called candy corn. It actually used to be called chicken feed. Chicken feed? Chicken feed. Yes. So it was created in 1880 and sold to the company that we now know as Jelly Belly. And because corn was used to feed chickens, they originally called the candy chicken feed. And the box featured a rooster along with a phrase that said something worth crowing about. So, of course, this is back in the 1800s. I don't know how much candy they had, but if this was their top-notch stuff. I believe it was. I mean, I believe it was. <laughs> in the 1800s. So oh. now today, October 30th is actually National Candy Corn Day, which what does that tell you? Like you can't even you can't even get Candy Corn Day to be like on I know they a different day. <laughs> they have to give it a day in hopes people will be like, "Fine, I guess we're buying candy corn." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about candy Garbage. corn. I think it's super gross and there's a comedy uh, stand-up set. Who does it? I forget and it's about candy corn and I like I love it so much and it talks about how all candy corn is just like recycled and it's all the same candy corn from like 1880 oh. <laughs> every year. <laughs> I believe so it. So that's just, yeah, I know some people like it. My kids like it. I just don't like I it. I mean, my kids just like sugar. So of course, kids love that kind of stuff. My kids have no preference on candy. They're just like, all of it's great. Um, You know what else yeah. is garbage and I used to eat a lot of? Two things. They're orange and that's why I'm thinking of them. Circus peanuts. Do you like circus peanuts? Wait, are they like marshmallows? Yeah, they're marshmallowy. Okay, no, so I don't like it. Okay, so I went through a stage where I was like, oh my gosh, I love them. I don't know that I ever liked them. I I bet a boy liked them, and I was like, all right, here's how I'm going to get in with this. <laughs> <laughs> and then I got 14 cavities, and it just, you know, he never noticed me. Um, and then also orange slices. I'm just thinking orange candies. Don't ask me why. Oh, because Ew, of, like the yeah. gummy ones? Yes, love those too. I used to lick all the sugar off of them. <laughs> I don't know why I started with that, but that's what I used to do. And then you would just chew it and it was like gelatiny. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I have no what they are. I just, I'm scared of those things. That and, okay, you know the other stuff that kids used to get at Halloween and it was like little gummy, like hot dogs and hamburgers? Like I could oh, never, yeah, yeah, yeah. I could never eat those either. Oh, you know what my parents always gave out? And I guarantee they're still doing this because they're so cheap. You know the black and orange, like, um, 
<laughs> they're up. like taffy. Yeah. Oh, they're just like, if you have a crown in your mouth, you know that thing's popping right off. <laughs> the second you put that cheap piece of candy in your mouth. Yeah. Oh, those are so gross. But yeah, and oh, they had gosh. like a little nougat or something in it. Nugget? Nougat? Nougat? And yeah, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> and it was terrible. It's like when you found that, that was like the good part of it. And still just caps, all my cavity fillings are coming out from my circus <laughs> peanuts. <laughs> So the next fact, there is a spooky story that goes behind this. I'm not going to say the spooky story, but I just thought this was an interesting piece of information that I actually did not know until today. So the original Irish jack-o'-lantern was carved not into a pumpkin, but they were carved into turnips, potatoes, and beets. So the idea of using pumpkins for jack-o'-lanterns really started and gained popularity here in the U.S. And now 99% of pumpkins that are sold in the U.S. are used to carve into jack-o'-lanterns, which I think is so crazy because it is actually food and you can cook it and eat it, but nobody does. Like nobody eats pumpkin unless you're making a pie or something. But like what else do you do with it? Do you just – I guess you just cook it like a squash, right, and just eat it? Wait, hold on. I have a question. So they're saying that 99% are used for jack-o'-lanterns. Are you saying that like all the canned puree has originally been a a jack-o'-lantern and then somebody was like, all right, guys, we'll put this in a can and sell it to people to make pumpkin pies. What is happening there? That seems like way too high. I don't want my canned pureed pumpkin stuff people to be cutting open carpet or I don't know what I'm saying. I'm very upset. Is that statistic true, Mandy? Melissa, I don't know. I just <laughs> now off. welcome to Google the city. <laughs> I don't know. You know I what I feel like off of a random thing. I mean, maybe it's not ninety nine percent, but yeah. But I no, think no, I'm just I referring you. to like uh, pumpkins that are bought, I guess, in stores or anywhere that you actually pay to have a pumpkin. I'm sure sense. factories can buy pumpkins and use them to make puree. I think they're just talking about the consumer. Okay. I'll, I'll take I mean, that. You know what I mean? People aren't yeah, going yeah. home and buying pumpkins to make pumpkin puree to store. I mean, oh, some, some people, people might, are. but like <laughs> 1% of them, that's all. <laughs> yeah. And I like that the percentage is one, just so like even the study is like really judgmental. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, 1% of you are doing it. So that's great. So on the topic of jack-o'-lanterns, a man named Stephen Clark holds the world record for the fastest to carve a complete face into a pumpkin. This includes eyes, nose, mouth, and ears. He did this in 16.47 seconds. I mean, can you seriously imagine sawing away into a jack-o'-lantern at that speed? I would literally cut my fingers off. That's what I was going to say. How many fingers does this guy have now? There's no <laughs> way he his whole hand survived. He just keeps breaking his record over and over again. At one point, I think whenever he first, I read when he first got made it to like the made it like world record worthy it was like 50 seconds and then like the next year he participated and he got it down to like 30 seconds and now he's down to 16 seconds to carve a pumpkin with a face like a whole face eyes nose mouth ears that's a lot to do in 16 seconds i didn't know we people carved ears in pumpkins i didn't either i didn't (laughs) know that was a thing but um this guy could do it i feel like he could shave off two seconds (laughs) think of all the things that you could not do in 16 seconds. <laughs> it takes me more than 16 seconds to stand up in the mornings. Like I have to <laughs> pump myself up to get out of bed. So no, I could not do that. No way. Yeah, that's why a is he much. trying to build, like beat his, why is he trying to beat his record? Buddy, yeah. you're just going to be competing with yourself. How are you going to beat this? This this is just backfiring on him. He needs his fingers and he needs a nap. He yeah. just <laughs> needs to stop. <laughs> 
So the last fun fact I have for you is about candy. And I know we've talked about our favorite candies on the show before, but obviously we can do it again because everybody loves candy. So you might be led to believe that the top Halloween candy is something chocolatey and delicious. But according to 12 years of data from candystore.com, it is actually Skittles that take the leading role of the most popular Halloween candy. That's what they do. Skittles. I I love Skittles. Yeah, you do. You do. Skittles are my favorite thing ever. I don't know how you feel about them. I don't think I've ever seen you eat Skittles. Yeah, I don't pick them, but if they are given to me, I will not pass them off. But I like the purple bag ones. Those like tropical oh, flavors, yeah, like they're yeah. so much different. I'm I'm just like very snobby with my Skittle consumption apparently, but I love the purple ones. Do you like the um sour ones? I love all kinds of Skittles. The my only ones watering. I didn't like was the ones that came out this year and well mm-hmm. this is like a new it was like a new trend that came out this year. I hope it didn't stick. I haven't seen any of this in a while. But they started making all these candies that were like hot, like spicy, yeah. like hot and sweet. So I tried the hot Skittles and they were so disgusting. They ruined everything for me. Uh, they didn't ruin anything for me. They ruined those for me. <laughs> <laughs> but I still Delete like my Skittles. Skittles. <laughs> but yeah, so and now they have they have like so many different new like funky flavored Skittles, but Honestly, the original rainbow is where it's at for me. So the rest of the top five Halloween candies are chocolate. You have Snickers, Twix, Kit Kats, and M&Ms. And that makes sense to me. I feel like that a lot of people like those things. I'm not a huge chocolate eater. But like, where are the Reese's on this list? I'm surprised. That's what I was thinking. I feel like Reese's may have been thrown. Well, I would say that it was thrown down because of like peanut allergies I don't know. Um, But Snickers is on there. So that doesn't make sense. But my son has a peanut allergy. So when we go like door to door, he like grabs them. And it's the most stressful thing in the entire world. I'm like, please do not touch those like anything else. Can you have anything else? And they will just fill his bucket up with Reese's. I'm like, well, this has been (laughs) (laughs) It is hard. There's a lot of peanut candies, like in especially Halloween candies. Like that's there's tons of them, you know. Well, I don't want him eating a lot, so we basically buy Skittles, and then we just trade them out. I'm like, you can just trade them for these, and he's fine. He just likes yeah, sugar. Yeah, of course. There you go. So uh, before we get out of here, Melissa, what is your favorite Halloween candy? Do you have one, a favorite? Um, hmm. Uh, this is really putting me on the spot. What do I like? To- well, I like to eat the Reese's that my son can't eat. We know um, you like Lemonheads. Love Lemonheads. I almost bought so many Lemonheads today and I had to Do you like the other kinds? Like, like, don't they have cherry ones? Okay, so here's the thing. They do make other flavors, but they have chewy ones. I hate the chewy ones. They are garbage. And those are typically the ones you'll accidentally buy. You know, like they make them in 25-cent boxes and you'll see them at like gas stations and small Uh towns. (laughs) So whenever I go visit my parents, I always grab some. And so I like some of the other flavors, but the original Lemonhead, the big circle one those are my favorite because you can kind of bite everything around it get all the sourness off and then just eat the rest of it i mean you're, my mouth is watering so much <laughs> right now and then i like the kind of in the yellow box that you can like get at the movies but you actually buy from walgreens before because it's way too yeah. the movies. but those are my favorite what are what's yours my all-time favorite candy that no one ever you don't ever get anymore i love the little strawberry candies that look like they're in a strawberry wrapper old people candy I don't I love care those. if they are old people candy or not. That is my favorite. No, I that's love what it. they're chewy on the inside. They're hard on the outside. They're so they're good. Great. I love them. But 
old people give those to you. That's like if you knew an elderly person growing up, that's they always had them. It was like it came out of their pockets. Like they washed their clothes and they just popped out of their their yeah. <laughs> pockets. Every elderly person had them. I love them. They're they so are good. so good. I know. And you don't see that. You don't see a yeah, lot of the forever. candy anymore that like I used to. Like I don't see a lot of bottle caps anymore. You know, you don't see pixie sticks anymore. Like all the stuff that I remember really liking getting in my treat bag when I was a kid. They don't really have that. I feel like it's a lot of chocolate now. Like it's all chocolate. Yeah. There is some fruity candy. I mean, you can get like bags with different fruity candy. I like nerds and stuff, but I'm more of a fruity and sour person. Not so much on chocolate for me. I feel like as I get older, um, I'm more with you. Like chocolate takes a lot out of me, but like the sweet and sour candies, like I can eat those for quite some time. <laughs> They're really good. That's probably a bad thing, but I can eat a lot more of those. And so in the moment, I'm happy. Later, I'm very miserable. But yeah, those make sense. I like those. Maybe. Yeah. All right. We'll agree. Well, that was the episode for this week. Um, whatever you do for Halloween or don't do, hopefully you have a safe and fun time with your family. We will be back, of course, same time. I don't even remember. What are we saying now? Same time, same place, new episode or new story, something like that. And then stick around for the end where you're going to play our Songfinch song that they made us last year. We love that so much. Hopefully you guys will enjoy hearing it again. Have a great week. Bye. friends for a few years since that first playgroup date of how much you love your chickens run around your zoo all day drink my diet coke wear my sweaters no matter how hot it is but hey you stand by me anyway yeah we're both just doing the best we can solving mysteries between the laughs with the okayest moms you could ever want won't ever take that back on this crazy ride of being your partner in crime the gym's getting us nowhere but it's no waste of time Anytime we're together, I smile right up to my eyes. I love my reality shows you your rabbit holes of conspiracies in our lives, but we still get along just fine.
so much for listening to the moms and murder podcast make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode you can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime thanks so much